Dr. Michael Osterholm is an internationally recognized expert in infectious diseases. And from June 2018 through May 2019, he served as a science envoy for health security on behalf of the U.S. Department of State. Even as some parts of the U.S. start to reopen from the COVID-19 shutdown, Dr. Osterholm believes we are in for a very long and difficult road ahead. Let's listen in. I'm really excited for, 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 for Michael. I've, I've watched him in numerous interviews uh, in, in, the, in the national press. He's been a, a, a powerful voice in helping us understand what's going on and really sharing with us um, what we're facing here. As I think many of you know, he's an internationally recognized expert in infectious diseases. Um, uh, and, and served as the science envoy for health security at the U.S. Department of State. He's a, it was awarded a Regents professorship in 15, uh, a McKnight Presidential Endowed Chair in Public Health, all up at the University of Minnesota, where I think it's probably starting to finally warm up. And, and, you know, but, but he wrote a very provocative article recently for The Atlantic, um, in which he spoke about the, the coming coronavirus winter. So I, I'm very excited to welcome uh, Dr. Osterholm to the, the No Labels Forum here today and, and, and just tell you how appreciative we are to have you with us. With that, let's turn it over to Dr. Osterholm. Well, thank you very much. Can everyone hear me fine? Great. Okay. Um, well, first of all, I, I appreciate the option to be with you. Thank you. Uh, obviously, this is a a historic moment uh, in uh, anything one would consider modern public health. Uh, we really haven't seen a situation like this dating back to 1918. Um, just by way of background, uh, and maybe just to make sure that we're all on the same page, just to understand what we're talking about, we surely know that this was a virus that originated in China. Uh, but suffice it to say that early on in the beginning uh, of the, the uh, epidemic that started in Wuhan, uh, one is I will very confidently tell you that uh, we have no data to suggest any of the contrary, that this was a virus that jumped from an animal species to humans, uh, and we can age these viruses by their genetic changes, uh, minor changes, much like a human aging. And we surely can tell a five-year-old from what he looks like when he's 50 years old. Um, and there's nothing in any of this to suggest that there was anything other than natural transmission. Uh, but it occurred in an area in uh, China where, uh, by the population size, uh, very few people initially recognized these early cases of this illness occurring. And it wasn't until late December, probably a month after this virus jumped uh, into humans, that we actually had evidence that there was something going on. Initially, many of us thought that this was, in fact, going to be another SARS or MERS-like scenario, where in that case... Um, SARS or MERS infections are most infectious in the fifth to sixth day after the onset of symptoms. And if you can identify cases relatively quickly, you can get them into isolation in a hospital and virtually shut down transmission. We did that with SARS once we learned that quite successfully. We got rid of the animal reservoir in the markets of the Guangdong province and SARS disappeared in 2003. Uh, MERS, the disease that's uh, common on the Arabian Peninsula, occurs in camels, 1.7 million camels on the Arabian Peninsula. There you don't put them down, you can't get rid of them. So we've had this ongoing hits on humans since 2012. And, but with that, the same thing uh, happens where we now recognize individuals are most infectious <clears throat> on day five or six or later, and we can really bring these uh, cases to a halt. It's just the humans keep getting infected from camels. Um, and then along comes this disease, which, as I said, we thought initially was going to be just like uh, uh, what we thought was SARS or MERS. Well, it became very apparent by to me and others in the second week of January that this was acting much more like an influenza virus. Even though it was a coronavirus, the transmission was clearly person to person early in the infection, uh, potentially even earlier than when people first showed their first symptoms, which we have confirmed now and that people are typically highly infectious in those early days of their infection. And once it started to spread within the Wuhan, Hubei province area, we saw that this was going to be a major challenge to try to stop this. On January 20th, our group at, the, at CIDRAP, the Center for Vaccine Research and Policy, put out a statement to a group that we advised that, in fact, this was going to be a, the cause of a worldwide pandemic, 
and that we shouldn't be surprised to see very quick and widespread transmissions for the world. And we meant by quick, we clarified and said, by the end of February, you will start seeing this, even though it's transmitting right now. Um, but it'll take that long, just like it took a month in Wuhan before cases went from one to two to four to eight to 16 to 32, kind of doubling about every five days. And that would take the similar uh, experience in, outside of Wuhan. And we'd start seeing cases by the end of February, early March. We said that when it did show up, it would show up in a major way in metropolitan areas within a short period of time. Uh, because it really had already been going on its transmission at a lower level there, just building up quickly. And, you know, you can appreciate if you go from, you know, four to eight to 16 cases, that's one thing. But when you go from 1,000 to 2,000 to 4,000, that's a whole other matter in every generation. Well, sure enough, the end of February, early March, you know the story, what happened in Europe, Iran, uh, the Milano area, New York City, uh, Seattle. And it really has continued on like that. But now we're seeing transmission around the world. 187 countries have now reported cases. Um, it's been difficult to confirm cases because of a shortage of testing, which I will come back to in a moment, uh, because we still count on that being the means by which you call someone a case. Uh, and we know that the, the number of cases far, far exceeds what the first, the global estimate is right now. Um, just to put this into perspective, and then I'll get into some very real specifics. Where are we at today? Well, if nothing else, this should be a sobering figure. Uh, on February 28th in this country, this virus was not in the top 100 causes of death. Not in the top 100 causes. Today, this is the number one cause of death in the United States this very day. Succeeding heart disease, cancer, accidents, etc. That's unparalleled, <laughs> dating back to 1918 in terms of what's going on. Now, what's happening with this virus? It is continuing to transmit widely throughout the world. And yet, when I say widely, I have to come back with a caveat and say that most, we believe, about at, even in the hottest areas, a quote, that about 5% of the population at most has been infected. In most parts of the world, it's still much lower than that. Why is that important? Because this virus, as much as damage as it's done already, is a virus that's going to keep doing what it does uh, until it probably reaches at least 65 or 70 percent of the population. Uh, this is when we have enough cases that develop illness with some form of immunity, as we hope. Uh, and then at that point, there's enough rods in the kind of the virus transmission reaction that slows the way down by having more what we call herd immunity. And so uh, we are just at the very beginning of this situation. Most people somehow feel like it's just about overall if you just flatten the curve. And if you look at previous influenza pandemics as a model, and you realize this is a coronavirus, not an influenza virus, but it's acting so much like a flu virus, I would have to say that just think about 1918, when the spring wave that occurred there was sporadic. Some cities were hit hard, some not at all. New York City and Chicago got hit hard in the spring of 1918. Uh, Baltimore, uh, Philadelphia, Boston, very little activity at all. Chicago got hit hard, very little activity in Detroit or Minneapolis. And then, of course, in the fall wave of 1918 was when we saw tremendous transmission around the world. Uh, just to give people, again, some perspective, remember this virus is only present for the last three months of World War I. And yet there are eight times as many soldiers buried in France today, American soldiers from dying from flu as died from the entire war. And uh, that's clearly not the pattern we're seeing here. Younger adults, but we're seeing an older adult, people with underlying health issues and come back to that. But it's still, still the same kind of dynamics that we're seeing. So we are going to potentially see one of several scenarios, cases continuing with our attempt to suppress it, which uh, I think most of us would agree is not sustainable in terms from an economic society basis. Uh, but if we tried to suppress it to, with the hope to find a new vaccine one day, that's what we would end up doing is basically trying to ride it out till we get some kind of vaccine to get us to that 75 or 80% protection level uh, from this case, from, from the protection of the vaccine itself. Or we could have ups and downs, bumps. We don't know. Kind of what we just saw. Go through this again every couple months, another month. Go up and down. Some different places, different times. It could be that scenario. Or the scenario I think that many of us are very concerned about 
is the fact that in 1918, remember in the spring waves I just talked about, we didn't have any human interventions. Uh, people didn't realize what to do, and the cases went away anyway. The virus did it. And why it went away, where it went to when it went away, and how it came back in such a full force in September is unclear. And uh, while I do believe we have had impact with the distancing activities that have got on to sh basically flatten these curves, as the term has so well become known, um, you know, I have to admit that we don't know how much of this would have occurred had we done nothing or something uh, in terms of the actual number of cases. This all gets me to the fact that my deepest fear, uh, as I see this unfolding, is that we will have a big wave potentially in the fall. Uh, uh, or even late summer, that could far, far exceed anything we've seen already to date. And um, anybody who's lived through New York, who has been in Detroit or Atlanta, New Orleans, et cetera, even here in our own state of Minnesota, um, you realize that's frightening to think about that, uh, and given what we've been through. But I think that's the potential we have to look at. Now, in terms of what can we do about it, um, one is just having the healthcare delivery system that can handle a surge capacity is key. Uh, we really stretched our system mightily uh, just during what we've been through, and that happened around the world. Um, we have to ask ourselves, how often can we do that, and for how long, and how many cases? And I think we're going to have some challenges there. We have challenges clearly on the equipment. Uh, the PPE, for example, personal protective equipment with healthcare workers, even though as we get closer to a lull in cases, uh, and we can hopefully make more than we're actually using, we use a lot of PPE. The 3M company, uh, which is one of the major manufacturers in the world in the United States, can make about 35 million of these N95s a month. Uh, the equipment that it takes to make them is intricately made itself. Uh, it's just you just can't put somebody on making N95 respirators to protect healthcare workers or anyone else like that. Um, those are very special, specialized equipment. For example, most people don't know that the actual face mask that fits over your face is tight fitting is actually a poured matrix. It's some liquid that gets poured and hardens. It's not just paper. It's, and it allows the air to pass, but the virus not to. So we're going to be short on PPE, but we're going to be short on a lot of other things too. Um, the drug world is another challenge. Our group has been very actively involved in looking at drug shortages for the last 18 months. We actually developed a list and now has become a nationally recognized list of 156 drugs that we consider acute critical drugs that if people don't have them now, they die. Meaning uh, everything from what's on the crash cart to even to the extent that paralytics that we need today to keep people anesthetized and uh, in a sense out of it so that we can basically use mechanical ventilators are incredibly short supply. Um, when we did our initial list of that 156 drugs, we looked at that, 63 were already in short supply. All of them are generic drugs, and the vast majority are made outside of the United States, and many were made in China. And we're still suffering from the shutdown in China in late December in terms of our supply chains. So again, another situation we're confronting with this over the course of the next year or two is the concurrent issue of this terrible pandemic occurring with the drug shortage that is going to make it a very acute issue for us. And so we've got to do what we can to help prepare for that. Um, the other thing we, we must do is just in terms of trying to understand how we interface between our economy and the issue of this disease. I, I think most everyone would agree a total lockdown is not going to work, not just because of dollar and cents, and it would be unfortunate if we compare dollars and cents to uh, someone's life. But at the same time, uh, for the essential services we need and for the things that we count on every day, and the fact that we know that younger individuals are at much lower risk of serious disease or death, not, not universally immune, but much, much lower risk, do we talk about and have a conversation how we bring back societies uh, using that group as well as at the same time trying to bubble or protect those who are older, who have underlying uh, diseases that most likely predispose you to having a much more serious disease like that, like diabetes, etc. Um, and we need to have that discussion now. What seems to be happening is it's either we're in or we're not. 
meaning that we're going to see a lot of places relaxing the requirements that have been put in place for restricting movement. And we all understand why people want to move on. There's been great hardships financially, uh, and uh, the world's ready to move on. I think you're going to see over the course of the next uh, several weeks some locations uh, releasing or at least relaxing uh, the uh, movement uh, requirements, and I think you're going to see a major resurgence of cases in in those populations. And I can give you a few states right at the top of my head that that's uh, likely a high choice. There's you've heard a lot about the issue of testing. Um, you know, I've come to believe that testing is the equivalent of the post 9/11 Cipro. You know, in Cipro we trust. Um, testing has, I think, been unfortunately uh, misrepresented about what it can do and what access we have to it. Uh, there are three issues around testing that I just want to share, and I'll break them apart into the, that which is testing for the virus and that which is testing for antibody. Um, first of all, there have been a number of reports coming out saying we have to test, 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 test. Uh, our group has been talking about since literally early March the challenge we're going to have with testing for, by PCR for the virus because of the lack of reagents. Uh, reagents are those chemicals which we desperately need to run the tests are the ones that elude out the sample material from the swab that then allows the RNA to be turned into DNA, et cetera, things like that. They're the gasoline of the test, you might say. And uh, just think about this. In uh, uh, December, when Wuhan first happened, there was at that time an existing supply chain need for reagents for PCR testing in the world. You might think of it kind of like a garden hose. Then with Wuhan and the very major increase in testing in China and parts of Asia, that garden hose went to a fire hose, and there was enough elasticity and, and just enough surplus in the system that they could catch up with that and pretty much supply that. When this virus went around the world and set the whole world on fire, 8 billion people wanted and needed to be tested in a sense, and the supply chains have just collapsed. Um, they're just not close to adequately being able to support this testing. So while there may be pockets of more testing available in some place someday, on any one given day, across the board, the governors are absolutely right. There is a major challenge. I wrote a piece in the New York Times three weeks ago today that said in about three weeks, we'd start to see really the impact of this implosion on testing for P by PCR. And of course, here we are today, and it's real. Um, now everybody's moving to antibody testing or want to do antibody testing, and uh, there's reagents for that, but give it five to seven weeks and those two will collapse because the world's trying to, in a sense, suck up those reagents. Now, in terms of testing, what can you do with it? Uh, we're not going to test, test, test. So let's just be really clear about that. It'll be some time. Anybody that tells you that's the full basis of their approach, then they're in trouble. Um, what we need to do with testing to help us monitor what's going on to understand how we respond is we should be testing clinically ill individuals with compatible illness. You know, and they asked Roy Sutton why Rob Banks, he said that's where there's money is. So while you're going to hear about all these other opportunities for testing, we really need to focus it right now on the clinically ill so that we know of those who are ill, how many really do have this and the numbers changing. So that's number one. Uh, number two is, is that we have hit, in a sense, a period that I have never seen before with the FDA. After the CDC uh, had its uh, challenges with testing and we fell so far behind as a nation compared to the rest of the world, um, we saw ourselves taking some real shortcuts. The FDA basically through emergency youth authorization uh, allowed this expedited uh, presence of these PCR tests, 45 of them on the market. And then they went so much further to say, if you have an antibody test, you just got to do a basic set of tests that you tell us that you did. And then you, we, we don't approve you, but you're on this list that you can basically now go out and sell your products. And there are 90 of those. And to make a long story short, as even a very senior FDA uh, representative last week said in a meeting with senior public health lab directors in this country, he recognized that many of those antibody tests were crap. And they are. We've had numerous reports of uh, testing materials coming out that basically gave us sensitivities and specificities, the ability to pick up true positives or say something's negative that were literally uh, below 50%. It's a real challenge. And FDA has to get its act together and basically pull this back in and really 
critically evaluate these tests so that we know that we're dealing with and what happens. But the third point of it is I want to talk about antibody testing. Uh, people are really getting high in that right now. It's the test du jour of the day. And there are really two major challenges with antibody testing, besides the fact we're going to run short again in the next few weeks. Number one is we don't know what it means. We don't know that you actually are fully protected against reinfection. We believe that might be the case. We also have data that supports that it could be a real challenge with these coronaviruses, which does not bode well for a vaccine. It doesn't bode well for people getting it over and over again, you know, months apart. So that's part of it. We don't know what to tell people they're positive. If they are positive, though, we can at least say that you've been infected in the past. The challenge with that is this is called a serologic test, and it's not a light switch-like test. It's not where you're on or off. It's a real stat meaning that you turn it up a little higher and higher. And if you get it a little bit higher, you get more and more real positives, but you then start taking in real negatives as positives, meaning that it's not quite clear. And let me just give you an example, and you tell me how you'd react to this. If you look at a population of 5% having this case antibody, okay, that's what might be occurring out there, a low prevalence condition. And let's just say we're going to test a million people. You're testing that million people, of that, you would assume then about 50,000 would be positive. That's the 5%, okay, 50,000 out of a million. If I test those, 47,500 of a test that's 95% specific and 95% sensitive, those 47,500 would be true positives, and I'll find them out of 50,000. There'll be 2,500 false, uh, false negatives, meaning they really were positive, but I didn't, I didn't find them. But more importantly, there'll be an additional 47,500, the same number as the true positives that will be false positives, meaning that because the test in a low prevalence population performs like that, you're going to find as many false positives as you're going to find true positives. Now, if I were to tell a nurse or a doctor, you're antibody positive, you can really feel good about that, maybe you're protected, but by the way, you really have one or two chance not being positive at all. And no one has thought about this. No one has really laid that out is if we're going to come out with these immune passports or anything like this, we have real challenges with this testing. So the testing area is nothing short to me of the wild, wild west right now. And so when you hear the answer, we're going to test our way out of this problem, et cetera. Final piece is contact tracing. Um, as somebody who has spent many, 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 many years in public health and has done this, I set up the very first HIV contact tracing program in the United States in 1985 in Minnesota. I've been involved with many contact tracing issues. So I can tell you that, you know, I know what the strengths are, what the weaknesses are. I believe in it as a public health tool. But with this one, it's going to be very, very hard uh, for several reasons. One is um, many of the people you might have exposed are people you don't know because these now we recognize these are transmitted in part by aerosols. It's not just people who are close to you. It may be people in the same room, uh, same subway car, whatever you could have exposed. Your most infectious looks like in the two days before you get sick, right up till you get sick. So again, you wouldn't even know necessarily who you were there with or who you're having contact with. But more importantly, what data we do have that shows the impact of contact tracing comes from countries like Singapore or Hong Kong, all areas right now that are severely challenged by recurrences. Of this Singapore is in a state of emergency. Today, they report out the most number of cases they've ever had. Grant you, many of them are in foreign migrants who are working there, but nonetheless, it's spreading in the community. So we really do have an issue here of of what we're going to do with contact tracing, how we're going to do it in this country when you talk about that. So in short, I would just say that, uh, you know, we've got a number of challenges we have to deal with. And uh, at this point, uh, our, our, our future is not clear, but I can tell you for certain we will be dealing with this for some time to come. All right, Michael, thank you. We have a lot of questions. I'd, I'd love to kick off with the first one. Having listened to this, I, I sat here and said, well, what are we going to? What do we do? If you were advising the president, or you were in the position to be the the czar, what would you do, and how would you suggest we as a country, we as a society, deal with the the, the clear trade off issues around the economy and public health, and how do we get through yeah. the next three to six months? Let's take the next three. Well, first, yeah. First of all, let me say we are coming out with a report next week that will get very detailed. It's very different than the other kind of reports that have come out. 
and it will actually go into detail on supply chain issues, on protecting vulnerable people. Pardon? Give us the coming attraction. You get a little. I'm going in. That's what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying. Okay. Um, And and so this report will give us a sense of uh, some of those things. But I think the most important thing right now, and this cannot be overstated, is that you know I hear from time time and time again when people hear me talk, they'll say, "Oh, you can't say that to people. People will panic." You know, I've not seen anybody panic yet at all. I've not yet seen riots in the streets and you know gunfights and so forth and so on. But people are scared. Most people are scared. Some surely are debating the existence of this problem. But most people are scared. And they want very much to know what to do and how to do it and who to listen to it. One of the biggest problems in public health we see is credibility. Who is our national spokespeople right now? What are they saying? How are they saying it? And, you know, to me, this is the FDR moment. This is when you need people to actually have the fireside chats where they say, you know, this is going to be tough. This is going to be really tough. But this is what we're going to do to get through it. So that's number one is leadership. And this is not a partisan issue. I've served in the last five presidential administrations, including this one as a science envoy for a year in the State Department. I served two Democratic governors, two Republic governors, one independent governor in Minnesota. And no one can tell you my partisan politics. I've always been a private in the public health army. But I can tell you as somebody who has been involved with many large outbreak issues, many challenges, that we at this time don't have that kind of situation where people are really trusting what's going on. That's number one. Number two, we need to have a clear and compelling story about how we're going to continue to support our economy as much as we can, but at the same time, bubble and protect the people at highest risk. Right now, we have two switches on or off. That's not going to work. As I've said over and over again, we need to thread the needle with the rope. We need to start talking about systematic release of people by lowest risk. We need to talk about what that's going to look like. We need to talk about how we're going to protect the most vulnerable. I'm in a state right now that has 120 outbreaks in nursing homes that are devastating. They are cruel. And we see this around the country. Almost nothing by attention has been paid to that. We're going to talk about that. We also need to talk about the issue of supply chains and what do we do. We should have had in the very first days of this outbreak, a major blue ribbon task force charged with martial like plan opportunities to figure out what we're going to do about reagents. Instead, we have let this all go to the private sector in a way that has been willy nilly. We need to build quickly new reagent capacity so that we can have better testing. We also need to build, rebuild our whole supply chain situation as regards to the strategic national stockpile. Right now in the federal government, 20% of what comes in to go out states in critical uh, uh, issues such as mechanical ventilators, PPE, et cetera. 20% goes to the White House, which we're not clear quite where that goes ultimately. 40% goes to the strategic national stockpile. And I defy you to find me one governor that can tell you the logic for where that goes. And then 40% goes on the open market like eBay, which is for no other terms like throwing red meat into a pit of hungry dogs. That's crazy. We need to go back to the very incident command structure that was well in place over the last four administrations that has a very transparent and centralized buying, centralized distribution, centralized accountability. Um, I could go through a list of things like that that are all doable things right now, but I have to come back and say the key to this is this is going to be ugly. This is not going to be good. And anybody who sugarcoats it is just denying what's inevitable. And, and I would say that that's where this leadership piece is so critical. If there was ever a time we need bipartisan support, where we need to have us all together against a common enemy, not just us in the United States, but with the world, what are we going to do? It's now. And that, to me, is the one thing I would change if I could overnight to help us move along in this discussion. So um, thank you very much, Dr. Osterholm. I'd like to ask about the USC um, study or uh, initial results of the serological testing in LA County that was released today. Um, It looked, I mean, I'm I'm a lay person. It looked to me like a very serious study and the results were quite striking that they were um, projecting through, through, you know, trying to uh, uh, test a representative sample of the population. They thought perhaps about 5% of uh, the LA County population had been exposed, which seems that it would suggest both 
that the R naught must be much higher than we thought. It's, it's much more transmissible, but also that the infection fatality rate is lower. I'd love your perspective on that. Yeah, a couple things. First of all, both the LA County study and the Clara County study are still subject to the same problems that I talked about with regard to the serology. Neither of them know exactly how well the serology works. And so that's a challenge. Second of all, I can comment specifically on the Clara County Santa Clara study because I think that has been grossly overstated about what we found there. And what I mean by that is when that whole thing was set up, it was set up at a time when uh, the uh, transmission of virus was surely active in Santa Clara County. People knew that, and yet they couldn't get testing done. And so people were asked to sign up if they'd had no symptoms. And already it's become clear that there were a number of people who participated in that study who said I had no symptoms, but they really participated because they wanted to find out because they had had symptoms, if they were positive or not. That selection bias for who gets recruited in a study is incredibly important and can have a big issue. So I, I think the serology might be right. I don't know, okay? But the bottom line was the ratio of symptomatic to asymptomatic is not clear from this one at all. Plus, you have to be very careful about when you ascertain illness history on someone and you test them. A good example was the Diamond Princess ship, where initially when people were tested, 50% of the people reported asymptomatic, meaning they didn't have symptoms. But we caught them right in the flash of transmission so that they went back three weeks later with the very same people and that asymptomatic had dropped from 50% to 14%. Because during that time period, the additional people got sick. They had symptoms. And so one of the challenges we have with these studies in very rapidly accelerating transmission areas, oftentimes we don't have time. The same with deaths. You know, oftentimes when cases first happen, deaths are often three weeks later. So people will say the case fatality rate isn't that high. We saw that with Korea, where at one point it was at 0.5%. And somebody said, see, look how much better they're doing, how low it is today. Korea is at 2%. And so, again, that same phenomenon. So I think that what these studies mean to me is not clear, uh, other than the fact that uh, I think that there are surely asymptomatic people out there, but I don't think it's as big bowl as that people believe it is. What's more impressive that nobody seems to talk about is the twofold factors of number one is that it's less than 5%, which says exactly to the point that I raised earlier about we got a hell of a lot of people to burn through over the course of the next months before we get to that 60% infection level. And that's really concerning when you think about what's happened in the first you know, three months and where we're at with how much we have left. I think the second thing is, is you know, I'm so... I hear this over and over again. Well, you know, the R naught is this or the R naught is that, or and then the case fatality rate is this and this and this, and so it's not really so bad. When is the last time any of you could tell me a disease went from not even being on the top hundred causes of death and within two months is the number one cause of death in this country? Have you ever seen emergency rooms in our country dating back to nineteen eighteen overrun? in many areas like they were and the impact that that's had. So I think that, you know, the, you can, you can say that, you know, whatever the case fatality rate it is, it is, but there is no even bad seasonal flu year, not even 19 or uh, uh, 57 or 68 that have done anything like this has done. And so I think to my standpoint, that's where I measure that is, is what's happening there. And I think that we have to recognize that uh, there's going to be a lot more of this to come. It's a challenge. I mean, a good example is, uh, uh, you know, I, from public health, would tell you that while CDC surely had its challenges uh, with regard to the test, they uh, have a tremendous amount of capacity and expertise in the area of pandemic preparedness planning, follow-up and so forth. And the fact that they've been largely absent from the table says to me, there's one key piece of coordinated planning that's not happening. Um, that, that to me is really an unfortunate situation. There's no one on the, on the task force right now that really has a primary public health training background to do this kind of thing. And I think that's, 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 we need CDC's leadership in that area in a big way. I think in terms of looking at all the other things, how we coordinate uh, I mean, this has got to be a, cr a critical private sector response because so much of what we need and is is in demand is all in the private sector's hands. 
Uh, I don't find the Defense, Defense Production Act necessarily all that attractive um, in the sense that you somehow can make a company start doing something else because in most cases, the machinery they have, the capability they have is to make what they make. You know, you just can't turn somebody into making N95s because you want them to. As, uh, as uh, the late, uh, the former Secretary of Defense once said, you know, when asked about why he wasn't doing more to get his Humvees protected, uh, he said, this is not about money, this is about physics. We can't get the parts built fast enough. And so I think that that's what we're seeing here, too, and how much that's coordination or lack of coordination is, is a real question. It is a real challenge. Uh, but I think that I see right now, you know, it's, it's, we're seeing private sector involvement, surely. Could it be a lot more coordinated and better? Absolutely. Great. Okay, let's go to Dwight Jusen and then Tom Fish. Dwight, your question? Um, in your words, uh, a big wave in the fall of late summer far exceeds everything to date. Uh, is beyond that being your deepest fear, is that a likely prediction? And a follow-up to that, since I want to get it in, is what is your uh, hope or belief about um, uh, drug treatments or treatments that will significantly lower uh, the risk of mortality by fall? Yeah, thank you. Those are both really great questions I would cover. Um, number one is, is that I don't know. Um, you know, as I said, we've been tracking this pandemic right from the get-go and have been on exactly um, what has happened. I wrote a book in 2017, Deadliest Enemies Are War Against Killer Germs, and uh, one of the chapters is actually a scenario of a influenza a pandemic that starts in China. And other than the fact that I mislabeled uh, influenza and should have called it the coronavirus. It has exactly followed that chapter to a T, what's happening right now. Uh, and in fact, uh, somebody wrote, took one of the paragraphs out of it last night and put it on Facebook, and they thought it was a current description of what's happening right now. Um, so I think having said that, I feel pretty confident where we've been. From here on out, I think we're, because it's a coronavirus, we're, we're in uncharted territories. Um, I would say that, you know, the three scenarios I gave you, slow burn, constant, peaks and valleys off and on, uh, or, you know, some peaks and valleys smaller, but then a real big peak, I, they all three are possible and plausible. I don't know. Um, I worry that of the ones we have to plan for, the big peak is the one that surely is going to challenge us dramatically if that happens. If, new, if, if the United States begins to light up much worse than New York lit up a month ago, uh, you can understand the implications as, 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 as can the rest of the world for that lighting up also. In terms of therapies, I think the, this is an area that I am hopeful with. I do believe that we may find therapies that are going to uh, surely lessen the mortality and, uh, and lessen ser serious morbidity. Uh, the challenge with that is, is that um, how soon and quickly can they be produced and what will happen from a worldwide distribution standpoint? Again, supply chains. Um, you know, we don't really have any efforts in place right now to greatly, greatly enhance supply chains if we do come up with a drug um, that would cover 8 billion people in the world. And there's going to be a major cry for this, whatever these drugs are, to be supplied to the world, not just the United States. And uh, I think that by the time such a, a drug could be found, uh, actually licensed and uh, manufactured and distributed could be many months. Uh, surely not any time before summer fall. I'm convinced of that. So I think that's going to be a challenge to have it in out there. Um, in terms of what a drug will do to the epidemiology of the disease, uh, probably very little except for severity outcome because most of the infectiousness is in the earliest part of the illness when you still wouldn't even be on treatment. So you wouldn't be reducing the viral load or the virus transmission issues. So epidemiologically, the cases would continue. The hope would be that we could lower the case mortality rate and, and the frequency of severe disease. In terms of vaccine, let me just say, um, at this point, I think we have to be very careful uh, to, to look at this. Anybody can make a vaccine. I can make a vaccine. Uh, the question is, is it safe and effective? And that's the big challenge we have. And I think we're actually going to have more data on effectiveness sooner than safety. 
uh, effectiveness or challenges with coronavirus vaccines. Um, the coronavirus people who've been studying these will tell you all about that. Um, so it, I wouldn't want to say we're not going to have one, but I, it's not to me a slam dunk. Area that I worry about in terms of timing and what's going to take is safety. Um, we know that from our work in 2003 with SARS virus vaccines, that there was a condition called antibody dependent enhancement, ADE. And this is a condition where a vaccine will induce a, a low level of antibody and then when it's not protective. And then when you actually do get infected, the virus together with this low level antibody starts an entire immune cascade, which creates a shock like picture and people will often die from that. This is exactly what happened with the dengue vaccine that was pulled off the market in places like the Philippines several years ago, where kids were seen to have suffered from ADE from who were previously vaccinated and didn't have enough antibody. And so for that to be a condition that we can evaluate and determine, is it going to happen? We're going to have to study this vaccine in a lot, a lot of people, because even if this occurs at one per thousand or one per 10,000 people, uh, which is high there's going to be a concern, well, how much safety data do we have to have before we can be confident it's not going to happen? Or if it does happen, we just tell people, you know, you have one X chance of getting this if you get the vaccine. So I think that between the two of those, I'm not optimistic about a vaccine anytime soon. Um, and I can only hope that we do get one that's going to protect, uh, but it's not likely to be the savior anytime soon at all. Yes, sir. Thank you, doctor. Um, it seems like uh, obviously we're fighting opposing forces here. The, there's needs to be a race to herd immunity, but also the slowdown is to not not overtax our healthcare system, which I think was the kind of the original intent of of this shutdown. But all as all as you said, under an unsustainable economic shutdown. And I was just going to ask, how do you all think about the, the the mortality rate and the number of deaths of this now number one killer? versus the you know, potential economic devastation? How do you put a, do you think about mortality rates um, of what that would cause? And my second question is, should this be managed really on a region by region basis based on just healthcare capacity of those regions? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you. Again, very thoughtful question. and. Um, let me just take a step back on that first question, because there's actually a third component that comes to play here. You raise the issue of what this disease is doing, as well as what by having the economic situation, what that's doing. And clearly, from a health standpoint, we know that depressed economies result in a substantial increased number of health conditions, lack of access to care, um, suicides, I mean, just all kinds of things that come to play there. But what's also being missed with the COVID-19 outbreak, and we're trying to get some handle on this, is all the collateral damage that happened to people who didn't have COVID but had other conditions that were compromised in getting care because of the COVID overrun. This includes heart attacks, you know, cancer treatment, accidents, asthma attacks, you name it. And so that one of the things that happens when you basically overwhelm a healthcare system, you also uh, basically make it unavailable for those who otherwise would have used it every day. And the cost of that is a double whammy. It's a collateral damage. And that's huge. And so we're trying to weigh all that, you know, to say, you know, how do you respond to this? If, if you just let it go willy nilly and basically runs its course, what are all the collateral damage issues that go with that, including infecting healthcare workers, losing them, uh, and these other conditions? But I think you raise a very good point. That's what kind of what I guess I would say big picture thinking we need to look at. How does that all come together? You know, uh, when you hear the medical ethicists talk about who gets a ventilator, um, it really is difficult when you're talking about not just two COVID patients, but you have COVID patients that may survive, but you have a quad quadriplegic who needs one who basically is vent dependent. If you take him off him, he dies. But what's his long-term sustainability? If he uses a vent for the next six months, how many people's lives could be saved if they got a vent for five or six days? And when you hear these discussions, at first, they almost seem surreal. But they're happening. They're actually happening. 
And I think that's where we have to really dig deeper into this and, and really uh, address what you're saying. As far as addressing it by region and such, I think there are great differences right now between red states, blue states, just by some population, rural. I come from rural Iowa, um, and I get that very, very much. But that's all going to change over time. Red will dissolve to COVID. Blue will dissolve to COVID colored. And we're already beginning to see it in a number of rural areas in our county or our state of Minnesota, which is 13 miles from or 13 hours drive from the northwest corner to the southeast corner. And uh, now 77 of the 87 counties have cases. Some of our biggest case counts right now are coming outside of the Twin Cities of Minneapolis-St. Paul, which is about 60% of our state's population. And it's just a matter of time. We see it with seasonal flu every year. Um, it takes time. It's slower to get there. But once it does, it spreads readily right through rural America. And I think that part, I don't feel like there's that. When you ask a question about regional, surely what we saw, Seattle versus, say, Salt Lake City versus Minneapolis versus Detroit versus New York, all very, very different experiences. And you're right. They have to be managed on a regional basis about what's happening right there. But I think that as this thing continues, you're probably going to see less of that if we, in fact, have a big peak or if we have a series of smaller waves where pretty much everybody's going to be in the soup at the same time, which is, of course, the nightmare from a logistic planning standpoint, because if we're going to have excess capacity and can share it around, that sure helps. But if everybody's trying to draw down on what little resources exist all at the same time, then that's a heck of a challenge. And that's, I think, where we're at right now. I mean, we don't have that. So... Yes, we should have regionalization planning. And most states, that's how it's set up, frankly, that that kind of planning does exist. And, and I know in our state, for example, uh, there's there's real attention paid to greater Minnesota versus the Twin Cities metropolitan area. Thanks, Ron. And thank you, Dr. Osterholm, for an outstanding presentation. Here's my takeaway from what you've said. We are going to have to start reopening the economy well before many of the testing and other conditions that people have called for are near being satisfied. So in the real world, as opposed to the ideal world of plans, if you're a businessman, what do you do to make it safe for your workers and your customers uh, to enter and work in a reopened business, given the fact that we're not going to be able to test everything? What is safe enough and how do we get there? You know, that that is, again, obviously I'm speaking to an incredibly smart group. I mean, I know you all are, but really smart because you're all asking the trillion dollar questions. Uh, you know, I have been one of those people that has been a, a real pain in the south side to a number of people about transmission because our, I've done a lot of work with influenza. It's very clear to me that aerosols transmit influenza virus and now today we have a very complete body of data that supports that, that these little tiny particles, the kinds that you see when you see the sunlight peering through your window and you see all that dust floating, or you go into an apartment store and you're four aisles away from the perfume section, you can still smell it. Those are, perf those are aerosols. It turns out when we talk, we produce aerosols all the time. If you're in a conference room with two people before a half an hour by everybody's breathing, everybody else's aerosols. And this is one of the reasons why we think this virus is so infectious is the fact that aerosols have played a role in the transmission of this virus. That's why short of an N95 mask, the kind of really tight face fitting and the air has to come through the matrix, um, you don't really do that much. A surgical masks can have some benefit. And these cloth masks, I was just on the National Academy of Science Expert Committee on masks in which we looked carefully at any data that would support wearing cloth masks would make a difference, either as source control, meaning if I have it on, if I'm infectious, I won't transmit, or it protects me from somebody else. These aerosols go right through all the cracks. Not, you don't have the tight face fit. So I'd like to tell you that there's something we can do for respiratory protection, and I'll tell you there isn't because we need to save every N95 respirator we have for healthcare workers. Um, so it is going to be a challenge. I'm not going to sit there and tell you if you're if you're six feet away from somebody who's infected, you're going to be protected. I can't tell you that. Um, I also can't tell you that if you just wash your hands really well, that's going to take care of it because the data had clearly, and we've looked at this so carefully, if you look at how soft the data is, the same environmental surfaces play a role in this, it really began almost as 
you know, it could be, and the CDC site actually says this, so we, we don't know the role, you know, may not be significant at all. In their site, they say this. I think we've grossly overstated what, de- what viral decontamination does. You know, all these people in the streets of Asia in their white suit spraying, that's all for political theater in a way. I mean, they may believe it works, um, but it doesn't. And so I can't even tell you to disinfect your place or whatever, because it's really what's in the air. And just to remind everybody, when you think about it, in the early December of last year, if you were to take a snapshot, and we actually have them, of people in Wuhan and Hubei province, well over 99% of people wore masks every day, just as part of culture. Did that stop that outbreak from just blowing up in Wuhan? Not at all. I think it, it was in spite of it. And so I think I can't even tell you to wear masks of any kind that will make a difference. So I think we're going to have to make decisions about, do I want to move out of my life? If I get infected, what does that mean? And I think that's where I raise this issue about younger individuals. I think that, you know, should we be allowing them the opportunity to go out and say, you know, it's really your informed choice. Uh, we're not asking you to do anything dangerous, but at the same time, you know, you are at much, much lower risk. You are going to be more, much higher than the 80% are going to have mild to moderate illness or worst, and that's it. So should they be going back out? And that's what we don't know. So to get your business started, that's the truth, as I can tell it to you. Uh, but I surely would say I think we have to get businesses started. I think that's going to be important. And uh, what we have to do now is just figure out, um, you know, how much risk society is going to take and what they will accept. As Dr. Osterholm explains, COVID-19 is fortunately not nearly as deadly as previous coronaviruses like SARS or MERS. However, it is much more contagious because carriers can transmit it to others for days before showing symptoms. Only about 5% of the U.S. population has been infected with COVID-19, and Dr. Osterholm expects spread to continue until 70% of the population is either infected or immunized by a vaccine that is still a long ways away. That's why Dr. Osterholm believes the key to combating another wave in late summer or early fall is ensuring the healthcare system can handle a large new surge of patients. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to stop the virus, save lives, and get Americans back to work. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.